Amen. Let's continue our time of worship by opening up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22 as we continue our series on the life of David. 1 Samuel 22, it's on page 229 in your pew Bible. And that song we just sang is based on Psalm 103, a psalm of David that calls us to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord, not because our circumstances are favorable necessarily, but because our God in all circumstances is faithful. That's the message of that psalm. And, and I was reminded, even as I drove to church this morning, I actually stopped halfway down our street and got out of the car just to get the full view. Did you see the rainbow this morning? Right? A sign of God's beauty, His majesty. A sign that God is faithful to His covenant. He is faithful to His word. The point being that no matter what we are going through, we can trust God at all times. Because God is is faithful. And that's why we ought to be able to sing, whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Jesus said, we don't know what a day will bring forth, but we know that whatever does uh, that that day brings forth, that God will be faithful. The question is, will, will we still be singing when the evening comes? Boy, it's one thing to sing that song. It's another thing to really live it when hard times fall your way. Yesterday morning at this very hour, a pastor friend of mine who lives in Maine posted on Facebook, I sit here having just preached at the funeral of a dear saint this morning after about three restless hours of sleep last night. As some of you know, the camp we have been slowly and lovingly building for the last nine years went up in flames last night. We don't know how it started, and it doesn't do any good to speculate or the cause at this point. It's just gone. Countless hours of labor with lots of help from family and friends. Our vision was that this would be a place of rest and retreat for our family. They have five kids. But also for other pastors, missionaries, friends in Christian ministry to be a blessing to them and their families. Perhaps God has other plans. It's too early to tell. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know the one who holds the future. The funeral message I preached an hour ago was based on 1 Corinthians 15.57, which says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is not in living a good life, accomplishing many things, completing a camp, but in the hope and joy of knowing that through Jesus Christ, we who belong to him have overcome sin and death and have the hope of a resurrection to eternal life. That is all that really matters. Sometimes we can get things backward in this life. When Joshua was preparing to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, he told them to put away their foreign gods and choose this day whom you will serve. And then he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But sometimes we get mixed up. We begin to think, as for me and the Lord, we will serve my house. In fact, many preach, and I fear many believe, this mixed up gospel. This is not good news. There is no hope or joy in this kind of religion or faith. God is not a genie whom we co-opt for our pet project. No, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
And then he closed with this verse. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, that's that song, that truth in action, in real life. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That's every Christian's testimony. You may be in distressful circumstances, but you can be sure that the Lord your God is with you every single step of the way. We've seen this principle play out in David's life. The Holy Spirit assures us that such things were written in the Scriptures to teach us today so that we, through endurance and through encouragement from the Scriptures, might have hope. The confident expectation in our lives that God will follow through on every promise that He has made to us. God is faithful. For the last few chapters in 1 Samuel, David has been on the run from Saul. And he is learning these lessons in his own life as he is on the run from the man who wants to kill him, who happens to be the present king of Israel. Literally overnight, David goes from being the king's in-law to an outlaw. He loses his position. He loses his command over the king's army. He loses the companionship of his wife. He loses the company of his spiritual mentor, the prophet Samuel, and even that of his very best friend, Jonathan, who ironically is the son of King Saul. And as Saul continues to hunt David down, David goes from place to place. And yet everywhere that David goes, in every situation that David finds himself, the Lord his God is with him. And not only is the Lord God with him every place that David goes, but God has appointed a special purpose for every place David goes. There is a God-appointed purpose for every place David goes. And we've been looking at that in chapters 21 and 22 of 1 Samuel, where David goes to five different places as he runs from Saul. We looked at the first of these places last week, the first three. We looked at Nob which we dubbed the place of provision. If you were with us last week as we studied 1 Samuel 21, you'll know that this is where David got food and weapons from Ahimelech the priest. In his desperation, David resorted to deception, saying that he was on a secret mission from the king and and the matter was urgent and he didn't have time to pack. And so he asked for food and weapons. Ahimelech, not knowing any better, helps David out by giving him holy bread from the tabernacle. We saw last week that this holy bread consisted of 12 loaves, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was an indication, it was a sign that God's people were always before him and that God was always with his people. It was an indication of God's presence and his provision for his people. Ahimelech also gave David the sword of Goliath, a visible reminder that God is able to give us the victory even when we were when we're going up against impossible odds. There should have been a reminder to David. And yet in this weak moment of desperation, David lost sight of just how powerful and amazing God is. And he utilized his own resources. But we were reminded that even when our faith is weak, God is merciful. God is faithful. And even when we sin, God still shows mercy even in the midst of our sin. We even sing a song about that. Our sins, they are many. His mercies are more. 
God remains faithful. God always provides for his people, and Nob was a reminder of this reality. The next stop was Gath, which we dubbed the place of panic. Whereas Nob was just a few miles from Gibeah, the hometown of Saul, Gath was 23 miles from Nob, so clearly David is putting more distance between Tim and Saul. He heads to Gath, which is, was not only the hometown of Goliath, it's also where Achish, the king of the Philistines, resides. David figured that Saul wouldn't be searching for him there in enemy territory. But David soon falls into the hands of the enemy, and he panics. And in his panic, David pretends to be crazy. He, he claws at the city gate. He allows drool to dribble down his beard. And in this moment of desperation, David loses his dignity. And he's driven from the king's presence. And we thought about how many times we've gotten out of a bad situation. Not because we acted wisely. Not because we acted in a dignified manner. But simply because God was merciful to us, even in our foolishness. In fact, sometimes the Lord will put us in desperate circumstances to get us to the point where we have nothing left, and so we are driven to Christ himself. And that was the case with David as he fled from the king of Gath and went to the cave of Adullam. And we dubbed the cave of Adullam the place of prayer. At Adullam, which means refuge, David wrote Psalm 142, which we read last week. It begins on a note of desperation and yet ends with a confident declaration. David begins his prayer by saying, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. I lay out my trouble before Him. Then in the middle of the prayer, David says, No one cares for my soul. No one, no refuge remains for me. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge. And that's the turning point. David is now turning to the Lord in his moment of desperation. says, no one cares for my soul. No refuge is left for me. I see you now, Lord, as my refuge. I come crying to you. And at the end of the prayer, David's uh, faith is restored as he says confidently, the righteous will surround me for you, Lord, will deal bountifully with me. David's fear in this moment is gone. His faith is restored, and his prayer is answered. Look now at 1 Samuel 22, where we read in verses 1 and 2 last week. We'll read them again. 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him. So David's prayer is answered. Adullam is about halfway between Gath and Bethlehem which is David's hometown. And when his family, uh, his father Jesse, his brothers, his sisters, his mom, get word of David's whereabouts, they too run to where he is for refuge. Because they figured if Saul is out to kill him, that puts an immediate threat upon the rest of our family as well because of our relationship to David. So they too flee to David there at the cave of Adullam, where 400 other men have also uh, joined themselves to David. These are men who were oppressed. They were embittered in their soul. They're looking for a real change in their life. And the Lord brings them to David. 
And so God, in response to David's prayer, not only restores his confidence in the Lord, but he also restores his leadership over others. David is now going to influence others for good. He is going to be used by God to provide for them, to protect them, to bring to them, uh, bring them to the place where God wants them to be. As David is surrounded now by his family and his new circle of friends, he calls them to join him in praising God. And that call to worship is recorded in Psalm 34, which we read in its entirety last week, but it opens up this way. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord The humble shall hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David praises God because even in their most desperate moments, the Lord doesn't let go of his servants. That's what we learned last week as we looked at the first three places David went to. And now we'll see how this principle continues to play out in the last two places that David goes to here in 1 Samuel 22. The Lord continues to show his faithfulness in these next two places. Picking up the account in 1 Samuel 22, verses 3 and 4, we read, And David went from there, that is Adullam, to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So there you see the last two places, the first of which is Moab, the place of providence the place of providence. David knows that his aging parents won't be able to keep up with him and the other men as they continue to move from place to place. So David takes his mom and dad to Moab, where he leaves them in the care of the king. As you can see by the map on the screen, Moab is outside the territory of Israel. So that would be certainly one reason why David would take them there. But why Moab or not another region? I think there's a good reason for this. David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. Remember that? Ruth the Moabitess. After Ruth's husband died, she returned with her mother-in-law from Moab back to Israel and married Boaz. Ruth's story is told in the book that bears her name, which comes in the Bible right before 1 Samuel, the book we're presently studying. And the book of Ruth closes with these words. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So come to find out that having a little bit of Moabite blood in David's veins didn't hurt him. God used that, I think, to have the king honor his request. It counted for something with the king because he was willing to let his father and mother Stay there with him in Moab. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, doesn't this shed some light on the events recorded in Ruth? A book that we studied not all that long ago. Doesn't this give us an even broader perspective than what we even see in the book itself on all that occurred in the book? 
such as the famine that occurred in the land of Israel, which is what prompted Naomi and her husband Limelech to move with their two sons, Malon and Kilion, to Moab, where there was more fertile ground. And it was there that Malon and Kilion married Ruth and Orpah, two Moabite women. And it was due to the death of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and her two sons that she and Ruth and Orpah are left as widows. And so Naomi goes back to her native land of Israel and assumes that Ruth and Orpah will stay in Moab. But Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Orpah goes back to Moab, but Ruth goes with Naomi to Israel. And it's as Ruth is going out in the fields to glean for her mother-in-law to provide food for them that we read in chapter 2 that she just happens to go to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, her father-in-law's relative. She ends up marrying Boaz, who not only cares for her and Naomi, but also gives birth to Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Providence was clearly at work back then as Boaz became the means by which God would provide for Ruth and Naomi. But God was doing even more than that, we see now. God was orchestrating events back then to preserve the life of Naomi and Ruth's grandchildren and great-grandchildren a century later. Yesterday morning in my own Bible reading, I came across this verse in 2 Kings 19, verse 25, where the Lord God says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. I want you to think about all the twists and the turns and the trials of your life. Things that you would have wished to have gone very differently just like Naomi would have. Why was there a famine in the land? Why did God let us go hungry? Why did my husband die? Why did my sons die? Think of all the twists and the turns and the trials of your life, and you, like Naomi, may wonder, why would God allow such and such to happen? But God may be doing things, in fact, I would assert God is doing things in your life right now that will impact generations to come, and, and you don't have a clue necessarily what that is going to be. You won't have any more of a clue than Naomi or Ruth did regarding David and his parents. Our perspective is so limited, isn't it? We, we can't see beyond the here and now, which is why we are called in Scripture to exercise faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to God must believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Ten years ago, John Piper put out a tweet that's still being quoted to this day. Most tweets have a lifetime of 20 minutes. Ten years later, Piper's tweet is still being quoted. He stated this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. 
God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Piper went on to say, there is no power in the universe that can stop God from fulfilling his totally good plans for you. Isn't that encouraging? The verse that we read moments ago, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God works all things, even the bad things of life, for an ultimate good purpose. And that's the lesson we should learn from David's trip to Moab, the place of providence. And then finally, he comes to the forest of Hereth, which is the place of protection. Look again at verse 5, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter, and then discuss. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest at Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to a servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, 
I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Friends, we delight in seeing God's sovereignty when it comes to sparing lives. Such in the case with David's parents going to Moab. But what about the sovereignty of God in mass murders? The gruesome killing of 85 priests, plus their wives, their children, infants, along with their neighbors, and all the animals. How can this possibly serve a good and holy purpose? We'll get to that. But just speaking to the narrative, King Saul at this point has become completely unhinged, hasn't he? His paranoia has led him to concoct a conspiracy theory that thinking everybody's against him now, everybody's in cahoots with each other, but it's nothing more than the product of his own deranged imagination. And instead of listening to reason, he initiates the butchering of 85 priests in Gibeah, followed by the ruthless slaughter of all their families, all their neighbors, the entire town of Nob. It's a horrid wickedness for which King Saul and Doeg the Edomite are fully responsible, while at the same time being a clear fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Say, Pastor Matt, how is that? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the judgment that God pronounced on the household of Eli the priest back in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord rebuked Eli, you might recall, for honoring his sons more than God and taking the best part of the offerings for themselves. As I thought of this, I thought of my pastor friend in Maine. Remember what he said? The twisted gospel that some teach themselves, as for me and the Lord, we will serve my house. That's what Eli was doing. He honored his sons above the Lord, and the Lord brought judgment as a result. For the Lord declared to Eli in 1 Samuel 2, verses 31 and 33, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Doeg's butchery fulfills the word of the Lord against the household of Eli. This doesn't mean that Doeg did right. That Doeg was doing God's will as far as he was concerned. As far as Doeg goes, it was a hideous act of evil. 
And God is never the author of evil. Scripture makes it very clear in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Saul and Doeg did what they did because they wanted to do it. It was because of the evil that was in their heart. But make no mistake that God was still sovereign even over their sin. God planned for it. Their act did not take God by surprise at all. God simply allowed them to do what they in their evil heart wanted to do and then used their evil act to fulfill His just and holy word against Eli the priest. In fact, did you notice as we read from 1 Samuel 2 that God brought this about in the minutest detail? God said that Eli's descendants would die before reaching old age. And they did. He said that they would die by the sword of men. And they did. And that only, there would only be one survivor so that he would weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And there was only one survivor. Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, who fled to David and became his priest. This is not the first time in Scripture that God has used the sins of others to fulfill His good and holy will. Way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, remember the story of Joseph? His brothers sinfully, hatefully sold him as a slave in Egypt, and God used that so that Joseph could rise to power second under Pharaoh himself so that he could provide for his family in that time of famine. And 20 years later, they all came and lived with him in Egypt where he provided for them. God used their act of evil to bring about a good result. They were fully responsible for their sin, and yet God was sovereign over their sin. After Years later, after they came to Egypt, when their father Jacob died, the the brothers began to panic and they said, now that dad is dead, Joseph will take vengeance on us for that treachery, that treacherous act we did to him so many decades ago. And they threw themselves down before Joseph and said, we will be your slaves. That seems pretty fitting, the punishment fitting the crime, right? They had sold Joseph as a slave. And now for fear of their lives, they fall down before Joseph and say, Joseph, we will now be your slaves. But Joseph assures them that he had forgiven them. And he helped them to see the bigger perspective. And here Joseph gives a statement that many of you have committed to memory. Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The treachery of Joseph's brothers and the mass murder by Doeg the Edomite, as well as numerous other accounts and scriptures that we could list, show us that even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies bring His will to pass. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring His word, His will to pass. The supreme demonstration of God's sovereignty over the sins of men 
was in the greatest crime of all, a, a, a crime that's even worse than the one we read here in 1 Samuel 22. And you know what that crime is, don't you? It was the murder of God's own beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God used the greatest crime in human history to do, to accomplish the greatest act of good for those who perpetrated the crime. Less than two months after Jesus' death and resurrection, and just days after Jesus had ascended to heaven, Peter preached to the crowd gathered for Pentecost right in the city of Jerusalem. And here's what he said as part of his sermon, Acts 2, 22-24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Do you catch that? According to God's deliberate plan and uh, foreknowledge, you, with the help of wicked men, nailed him to the cross. God used the ultimate crime, the crucifixion of his own beloved son, to accomplish the greatest good which is the eternal salvation of all who will repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ to save them. Whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. And the reason that is the case is because God was sovereign over the sin of those who murdered His own Son. They were fully responsible for what they did. And yet God was still fully sovereign over their sin. The ultimate crime brought about the ultimate good because of God's amazing grace. People all over the world have been getting saved ever since. Pew Research did a detailed demographic study and found that over 2 billion of all ages around the world, uh, 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 Christians now amount to over 2 billion people of all ages around the world, which accounts for nearly one-third of the world's entire population. But if you go back to even the first century, just a few decades after Jesus had died and was raised and ascended to heaven, the Apostle Paul is writing to a local church as far as Colossae. And he says to them, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Within just a few decades of Jesus' death, the gospel had already spread throughout the entire known world at that time, the Roman Empire. Before his, before his ascension, Jesus promised his disciples, what? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Has God made good on His Word? Yes, He has. The gospel continues to go forth in power to all nations today. And the forest of Hereth became a place of protection for Abiathar, 
and all the other men who came to David to be under his care. Brothers and sisters, in a far greater way, Christ is the protector and sustainer of his people. All who come to him in faith and look to him alone for salvation. No matter what happens in this world, and a lot of terrible things happen, believers are eternally safe and secure in Christ. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Remember that when you go out to vote this Tuesday. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Even in their most desperate moments, the Lord never lets go of his servants. What David said to Abiathar in the worst moment of his life, Jesus says to all who trust in him, you are safe with me. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now to the table of communion where we remember the sacrifice that our Savior paid so that we could be saved from our sin and be reconciled to You. I pray that we would reflect on how You have orchestrated the events of our own life to bring us to Christ. And even as we do that, Lord, there may be some here who have yet to trust in Christ, but you have orchestrated the events of their life to bring them here this very day so that they could hear the good news of salvation. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in their hearts to to bring them to that place of repentance, that they would turn away from their sin and trust in you for salvation. And may we who have already received this great salvation through faith in Christ. Oh God, may we not neglect it. I pray that we would use the bread and the cup to remind ourselves of what a great price has been paid to secure our salvation. That we would confess any known sins to you, anything that is interrupting our fellowship with you, so that we might go forth from this place blessed, experiencing your empowering presence for every step we take. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.